My name is Jeff Harbach. I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and the host of the Coffin Fellows podcast. This season, our podcast is produced in partnership with Mighty Capital and features different Coffin Fellows as co-hosts. In this podcast, we dive deep into the personal narratives of some of the most successful names in the venture capital industry, but we're not here just to explore their highlight reels, however impressive they are. From failures and formative learning experiences to inflection points and aha moments, we discuss the real, authentic journeys that each individual goes through to become the best version of themselves in order to best serve the entrepreneurs they invest in. Covering various themes in venture capital investing, we speak with the world's top leaders in capital formation, all from a place of authenticity and vulnerability. Together, we'll unravel what truly makes a great venture capital investor. Now let's meet today's host and their guest. Hi, I'm Code Cubit, founding partner of Mistral Venture Partners, and I'm excited to host a series on building an enduring investment firm. Let's hear from my guest today. Well, hello, Susan. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Code. Thanks for uh, inviting me. I'm, I'm really honored to participate in this project you're doing. Terrific. Well, I've really honestly been looking forward to our conversation. I'll, I'll share a, a, a reflection. It occurred to me that it was going to be really interesting to talk specifically because you had hired someone early on in your career and mentored them. And he was a Kaufman fellow, Scott Cho, who then went on to hire me as an associate um, and mentored me for many years. And now I've gone on to start my own firm and I have associates of my own who I mentor. So there's, it's a little bit like coming full circle. It's the virtuous cycle, right? <laughs> and Scott Indeed. has been quite successful. So I'm, I'm very proud of all that he has done and obviously what you're doing. And the institution lives on and the apprenticeship. So with that, Susan, maybe we could talk a little bit about the beginning. I'm curious to know how you discovered venture capital and, and maybe even before that, like what led you to technology and why that as a career? Well, let's answer the latter and then we'll go to the former, which is what led sure. me to technology is... Um, you know, I was always the geek in, in school, and I was the one who was uh, headed up AV in the school and, and was the one who was bringing in the first Apple computers. I remember um, going down and buying that first Apple and bringing it into, um, into high school to tell my teachers what this wow. new thing was. And, uh, and so it was a natural progression to go into electrical engineering for me because I was so curious, and I just enjoyed that whole process of uh, logic around it. And that led me uh, to my career, which is um, starting out in designing microprocessor chips and then running um, divisions of companies and international operations, and then starting and having my own company for seven years. And while I was doing my MBA during uh, my company time, the dean of the business school at UCLA, where I was doing my MBA, came to me and said, should go look at this Coffin Fellows program. It's quite interesting, and I think you'd be really good at it. And so I explored it, and I really enjoyed the process. Was honored to be selected in the second class, and came to know venture capital through that process. And then at the end of that two-year program, uh, stayed with the firm I started with, and was a partner that led communications and security practice. And so it was. Uh, it was just such a great unique opportunity to get to work with entrepreneurs and help them realize their dreams. That's amazing. So you really were there at inception. I think about so microprocessor design at Fairchild and NCR in the early days. And that's really the beginning of where it all started. And not to say that's where venture capital started or, or the idea of innovation and entrepreneurship, but certainly in the Valley early days, this is, this is where it all began. I'm curious what, you know, in, in, I guess, 20, 30 years, what's changed and what's, what's stayed the same in your experience? 
I think what's changed, uh, particularly I'd say in the last 10 years, is the institutionalization of venture capital, where you see large, large funds, billion dollar plus funds, and a structure that is much more like a company versus the earlier days of venture capital, where you really did have a much more flat organization and a group of individuals that were working with companies. I remember when I came into the industry, I was very fortunate to spend time with Bill Draper, an early pioneer within the venture capital industry, and Dick Kramlick, um, the founder of NEA, co-founder of NEA. And both of them uh, were really much more representative of the earlier days of venture capital, where you had an exceptional group of individuals that came together to help entrepreneurs realize their dreams. And it's interesting where we've come now is a much more institutionalized approach to helping companies. But also uh, the other thing that happened is during my years and earlier years in venture capital, uh, there was pretty much one business model around venture capital. Uh, and what is happening about 2010, you saw this just explosion of all of these different models that happened, you know, accelerators become much more accepted and, and had some early successes. You had incubators, um, you had the single GP fund. That was very rare uh, in the earlier days of venture capital. And, um, and you also had um, the emergence of emerging managers, the sub kind of $65 million fund size category, which was highly unusual. Uh, so it is interesting to watch the changes that have happened in the venture capital industry over the years. Yeah, it seems like even our, our industry as a whole isn't immune from disruption. And, yeah. you know, we're in the business of disrupting other industries and, and here it's happening to us. I want to touch on the, the solo GP concept a little bit later, but I'm curious, like I can't imagine in the early days there were things like pitch competitions and incubators and accelerators. How did you generate deal flow early on? Like, what was the process if, if there was one? You know, it's much more kind of uh, feet on the street going to outreach to entrepreneurs. Um, there were gatherings of entrepreneurs where we would have well, obviously panel sessions and those have continued on. But uh, it was much more proactive outreach rather than more reactive. The network was very strong. I think that's the other thing that has changed is where before a lot of the entrepreneurs came to BC through references and through referrals. Now you see much more wide open aspect to entrepreneurs being able to get to VCs, you know, through AngelList, through other much more democratized approaches than what was before. So when when we, I mean, we're a seed fund, and we think about deal flow as hundreds, if not a thousand plus deals a year that we look at. Was that the case? Uh, you know, in the early days, or was it much more one or two a week through a strong referral? No, actually, you know, in the night in the mid '90s, we were tracking the deal flow because that's one of the elements that you can track on seeing quality of deal flow and, and ensuring that you have that quality level. And we were seeing about, I'd say, about twenty two hundred deals a year that okay. more or less fit our profile. Uh, and in even today at Align Partners, we track our deal flow as well. And I think on the last 12 month cycle, because we, we look at it for every L, annual LP meeting, we had about 1,800 deals come in roughly uh, that fit our profile. And I think we engaged with about 360, meaning we actually talked to them and met with them. And then uh, we invested in 
two deals. So that's kind of the pipeline that we've seen. And that's pretty consistent with what I saw in the mid-90s as well. Oh, that's really interesting. And then what about sort of the deal evaluation and diligence just inside of a partnership? So has that changed in terms of the process of, hey, I want to do this deal? And does it come to a Monday meeting? Um, Has that evolved over the years? So for our partnership at Align Partners, that's very consistent. We maintain that. And that's that was the approach that we did in the 90s. I know that there are many funds that today are using more of an analytic approach and using the analysis around, you know, the the network of the entrepreneurs as one of the data point characteristics that they're analyzing before they kind of meet or engage with a potential investment category. Uh, So I think it just depends on how sophisticated the fund wants to be. And also kind of the, how many deals do they need to do on an annualized basis? Um, if you see some of the funds, seed stage funds that are writing $50,000 checks and, you know, they may have 200 deals in a fund, that's a radically different approach to how you're going to do deal due diligence than uh, a, cup, a fund that might be writing a two to five million or plus up uh, check size. The due diligence process can be a lot more involved with that. Yeah, that, that is very different. And one of the, obviously the theme of, of this, this conversation is around how to build an enduring firm. So one of the things I'd love to talk about is just that in, let's say, a, I'll call it a modern fund, but in, in certain spray and pray type funds, it's all about velocity and deal volume, as opposed to working closely with an entrepreneur as a team. I'm curious, uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about team dynamics in the 90s, and maybe as that's transitioned, around how partnerships work with a team early on versus today and what dynamics and challenges you saw and and learned from over the years? So I would say in the 90s, we were very focused on -on one-on-one activity. Once we made a decision that we were going to invest in a company, oftentimes we'd bring them into our offices and particularly the early stage, obviously, uh, and work every day whiteboarding on what do we know, what don't we know, how are we going to find out? And uh, that was a very intensive process. But for our fund at that time, that worked really well. And that led to a lot of winners. Uh, We also did the other side of the equation because the uh, investing approach was a barbell approach where you had early stage and then late stage. And late stage Mm -hmm. was much more proactive. Let's do a market map. Let's see who the top winners we think are going to be. And let's see if we can get into one of those. Because when you have kind of what I'll call waves of uh, opportunity, you could pick off maybe the top one of the top three and be able to ride that wave at the later stage. So it really depends between those two approaches. Today, we again, our fund at Align Partners is very hands-on. And so we will work hands-on with entrepreneur and teams. Oftentimes, we'll work with them six to nine months before we might invest and see it also gives them a, a chance to work with us and see our style because uh, for us, we do a smaller number of investments. Therefore, we don't want necessarily to have uh, a big misfire. But for, uh, you know, more, and I don't make a judgment on spray and pray at all. Um, sure. So, um, But for those types of funds, they don't have that ability. And so they're what I would call very light touch. Uh, it's really one check and done. And therefore, it's a different relationship with the entrepreneur than the more intense funds would have. Yeah, there's clearly lots of different models that work. I'm curious about, you mentioned the barbell strategy. How do you divide up the workload 
as a team of partners? And how do you sort of decide who specializes in later stage and early stage? And is there any animosity or challenges between those two types of investing within a team? Yeah. And when I say later stage, I mean kind of series D, series, maybe series C, not series G and H, uh, where it might be very mezzanine. I think to do a mezzanine investment, that is a different skill set than the early stage. And so when I have been in partnerships that have tried that type of extensive bifurcation, there were a lot of miscues and misreadings that happened. And so I, I personally have not experienced a success model around that with a single united team. And I don't know how a team of GPs splits that out successfully. I haven't seen a successful model around that. Where I have seen success is where you have early stage and kind of the Series C stage company, because you're not quite as divergent. It's not, I, I view as mezzanine as really spreadsheet driven and a financial engineering exercise, as opposed to the, the more intensive company building skill set that would be at the early stage. And so a Series C style company is probably closer to that early stage than a MES style deal. And so I think you get more similarities in language and viewpoints and judgment uh, around that than you do in the bifurcation. I think that's why you see a lot of venture funds will oftentimes bring in a different GP group for their later stage MES funds that are maybe growth funds versus the early stage, because there is is a bit of skill set differentiation between those two. So that makes sense. So as you're becoming multi-stage, it's it's almost like a company where you have different profit centers who are managed differently, different KPIs, et cetera. One experience I had was, you know, an early stage firm tried to do public equities and, and are essentially private equity. And, and they didn't, the, the later stage folks didn't understand investing in companies without earnings. Like, there's no PE. What is that? And, and versus early stage investors are like, we don't want earnings. What, that's crazy. So it's a very different skill set. In my prior fund experience, we actually had two different domains. We had medical technology and IT technology. And the thought process was that the medical technology is less uh, variable and more steady, kind of steady return profile. And the IT had higher ups and downs, more uh, beta around the delivery of returns. And therefore, between the two, you would even that out. And what we found, or at least what I observed, is that the language differential between the two investment areas was very hard to bridge because you, a GP that invests in IT may not necessarily understand the nuances of the investment in a medical technology uh, company and therefore may not may judge it more harshly or less harshly and um, in the particularly the follow on decision making in companies so i think it's it can be quite difficult to have not only stage mixed funds but also domain space mixed funds that are dramatically different like biotech and IT or something like that. That's hard to bridge. It feels like that's a good insight for how to build an enduring firm, which is pick a vertical, pick a stage and own it, and maybe even geography. I'd love to talk about that too, because I know bi-coastal firms struggle just with cultural differences, even at that nuanced level. But pick the stage, pick the geography, pick the vertical, and be really good at that and go deep, and then ostensibly bigger and bigger. 
as opposed to try to even out um, the beta, as you say, between the different asset classes? I think that's part of the strategy that as, as a GP group, you have to make a decision on. And also the size of the fund, because it's very hard to put a billion dollar fund to work in a single geography, a, a, a very circumscribed geography than, let's say, one that could go you all of U.S. and all of international. or So you have to think through all the different sizes of your funds and the people that are best at deploying that capital. And, you know, I think there are funds that have been successful at that. I think Sequoia is obviously one of them. Although you do always have this umbrella GP group that oversees kind of all the funds, but underneath them, they have a specific almost uh, silos within that that execute within their either region or their stage. I think NEA has always had a mixed fund as well. But again, you have a over umbrella group of GPs, and then you have the subset groups that are specific to that. So there are different models out there that can be successful, but not always. That's fair. Yeah, NEA is a good one where it's run like a corporation, which it would need to be with the size of the team they have and process and so on. Let's switch a little bit to team dynamics because I, you know, this is inherently a almost a you know a type A game, right? All of uh, most GPs that I know have a big ego coefficients. They they strive to win. They you know they work hard, etc. I'm curious. Like from your early days at onset to near the end, and then currently with your current fund, can you talk a little bit about team dynamics? What works, and, and maybe even more importantly, what doesn't work? What should somebody look out for if they're trying to build out their team? What are the pros and cons? Yeah, I think, um, and obviously it depends a lot on the personalities that are involved and, and the relationships. Um, early on, it's, I, I think my experience is it's easier because you have fewer um, personality dynamics at the table, and therefore, uh, the decision-making process is easier. The trust factor is easier to establish. And you oftentimes have people that have worked together for some time so they understand the language that each other use and how to filter that language, the, kind of the risk tolerances of each of the partners. As the partnership grows, the, I, would, I would attribute it to the chaos factor increases, and it's not linear. It's logarithmic. And, um, and so that can cause a lot of dysfunction. I think that's partly why LPs are pretty careful about funds that expand too quickly because of that is that can cause a lot of dysfunction within a fund that obviously if not only affects the returns, but also will affect the stability of that fund in the long term, which LPs obviously are looking for stability and return capability. So, um, so I think one has to move through that very carefully. And of course, one of the key decisions is, do you promote from within, grow from within and, and develop a singular culture that is a slower growing fund then, or do you bring in from the outside and try to go faster? And uh, my experience to date has been bringing in from the outside and trying to go faster is very hard unless you've worked with those individuals, maybe in an entrepreneurial capacity so that they understand uh, and have developed that trust factor with the partners that are there. I think to bring in partners cold into a partnership at a senior level is very difficult because I think there is um, just, a, it is a trust factor amongst the partners because after all, we have fiduciary responsibility uh, to our LPs and therefore it, it heightens the decision-making and the emotions around that decision-making process. So I've always been a proponent of grow from within, but 
venture, as you know, um, if you're going to explode a fund and go to a billion after you've done a $100 million fund or a $150 million fund, you know, the dollars per partner has got to change and you've got to bring in more partners to deploy that kind of capital. So these are all the dials that one has to think through as they're starting their fund and, and where do they want to take it. Yeah, there's a, there's a whole bunch to unpack there. That's, that's, a, that's really interesting. Um, the apprenticeship model versus um, you know, the higher end model. And I'd love to maybe double click on trust. So in the early days, it's, it's like a new relationship. There's infinite trust because there's nothing at risk. And, but as things progress, uh, in, in my experience, right, so someone will get the, the, the rock star deal, they sourced it, somebody else sat on the board, and then there's animosity that happens. There's um, the end of the fund is near, and so the reserve table looks different, and, and different partners are vying for capital to preserve their investments. Um, there's a new fund coming up. I don't know if you can, if you can succinctly talk about the trust journey, if you will, with a partner and what what sorts of things to look for that are cracks in that in that relationship. Similarly, what sorts of things are reinforcing and affirming that this is somebody you can work with for, for a long time? Right. I think um, communication, obviously, is one of the elements. And if you think about, and I'll just refer back to the Kauffman Fellows Program, one of the focus points that we put on that education process is learning yourself, learning becoming very self-aware of your style and how that style interacts with others. And so I think that's one important element because my experience is a lot of time GPs have assumptions about each other and themselves that may not necessarily be true and will get exacerbated when kind of the chips are down and the stress points are hit inside of a fund. You are absolutely correct. The end of a fund uh, where the cash is dwindling is a high stress point. I think the other thing is follow on investments. Even though venture capital portrays itself as a team effort, if you look at when people look at track records, it's not generally the fund track record, it's generally the individual. And the individual takes that track record with them and that track record stays with them through their whole career. That's part of what causes the, the high difficulty on the emotional front in the traditional model venture funds. And so that can, if you can have an explicit discussion about that and an understanding within the partnership, that helps a lot so that you understand those stresses around that. And, and it's not kind of the, the elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about. Yeah, I'll, I'll highlight something you said about Coffin Fellows. One of the things I was most surprised by is the emphasis and work around creating safe environments to share vulnerability. And that surprised me. But wow, what a huge leveling up that provides. And then just the, the analysis and thinking around imposter syndrome, right? We're all inherently insecure animals. And by, by sharing those, whether it's at, within Coffin Fellows in our forums or even just in a partnership, I think it's, it's key to, to know that deep down we, we're aligned on, on what we're trying to do. So when you, um, when you started Aligned, I'm curious to know, did you think ahead multiple, like you're many funds in now, did you think ahead multiple funds and create some core tenets of what you wanted to stand for and believe in based on your learning from, from prior experiences? Uh, we did. Jody um, Jahick is my co-founder there, and she's also a Coffin Fellow. We'd known each other before we started Align Partners. Gosh, we'd known each other for almost 15 years. We'd been on boards together uh, from separate respective funds. So we knew a lot about each other, but you always learn more when you become a partner in a fund. So 
we had a basis of what I would call philosophical understanding around how you work with entrepreneurs and how you work with each other. I think when we started Align Partners, we always wanted to maintain that philosophy of win-win around the table rather than what you oftentimes see in venture capital, win-lose. And so that helps when you have that philosophical basis as a touchstone when you're making decisions. That helps a lot so that you're not going off of off kilter, so to speak, of what your base philosophy was in starting the fund. The other thing is we knew from the beginning we didn't want to be big fund because we'd been in big funds. I had been in large funds with many partners, six partners, and I knew that I wanted to always be able to work directly with entrepreneurs and not have to manage a fund per se, manage personnel and infrastructure. And that was not where I found my joy. I found my joy working with entrepreneurs. And so I think Having an understanding of what gives you joy when you're um, working is is really important so that you can fashion that in your venture capital experience. And for us, we fashioned a fund around that. That's why we our back office is outsourced. We don't want to manage a large group of people. That's not where we find joy. So we have an outsourced back office with excellent people that have been with us, that team, since 2011. Over you know We're now in the third fund. And we have not to date chosen to add additional people to um, our group. That is a choice that we make at every fund. So fund four, we will probably make that choice again. And so we, I think part of it is neither Jody nor I find joy in managing people per se. And so we have to decide how much of that do we want to do, if at all, or do we want to be like Foundry Group where they're not going to hire any individuals and they're just going to you know, last GP is going to turn out the lights. So that's a philosophy that, you know, you can go on. We haven't come to that decision yet, but that may be a direction we go, or we may bring in a junior partner and groom them for, you know, through fund four to get ready for fund five. I really liked what you said around, essentially, if I can paraphrase, you know, it's all about the entrepreneur. And I think, you know, a lot of, well, I'm not going to, I don't want to point fingers, but some VCs think it's about them, right? They yes. sort of see it as this, this pyramid of power and, and those who write the checks of all the power when it's, it's actually the opposite. It's all about the entrepreneur. And so that plus your, your self-awareness about what brings you joy and, and what you don't want to do, I think are key ingredients. It's pretty clear that I want to say there's two kinds of funds just to be gross about it. But, you know, the bigger, bigger funds are about AUM and they have a commensurate team size that expands accordingly. And so there's different dynamics with a large team, large AUM structure than there is about a small team, in your case, two partners, similar in my firm, that's highly communicative, you know, on, a, on an hourly basis, if certainly not daily. And then there's this, this new generation of solo GPs, which is interesting, right? And I don't know too many of them to know how they tick, but I'm curious what you think about that dynamic. Is that a, is that a maturation of our industry or is that a recognition that, you know, a lot of firms kind of blow up because of too many type A personalities and, and these are individuals who uh, want to succeed on their own. I think partly it's driven by track record of the individual. And in larger funds, even mid, mid-sized funds, it's, it's heartbreaking when you have a partner that can't make money. And so because you've got to do something about that for the interest of the fund. And so, you know, transitioning GPs that aren't making returns is very difficult. It's very expensive both psychologically and dollar-wise. 
So I think a, a single GP, maybe they had that experience and they don't want that experience again. Um, they know that of their capabilities and they'll just execute on that. Uh, thank you very much. And do for the LPs what they want to do and how they want to see it. Whether or not, obviously, they're going to have a legacy issue of whether they want to have a legacy or not in that fund um, or it may just be, you know, we're going to do two or three funds and that'll be it. So I don't know. So far, the funds that have done that, I've seen bring in other individuals uh, within the group to groom them to take over in later funds. I don't know how successful that will be because you have a single star deliver. Can another one brought in or two brought in deliver the similar returns? This has to be proven. That's really insightful. Yeah. You know, making money in venture capital is really hard because if it were easy, everybody would be doing it. It's really it's hard. Nice. And so, and there isn't any single magic formula. So that's part, I think, why you see these single GP stars stepping out. That's really insightful in that what it leads me to believe is that to transition a fund successfully, you need scale, which means that you're diversified across a bunch of GPs who ostensibly are making money as opposed to a really small fund where the GPs are the stars and if you lose a star, then the risk goes up dramatically. So the, the ability to transcend is, is much lower. The last topic I'd like to talk about a little bit is economics. So if I'm a solo GP or you know, a firm with only a couple of GPs and we're thinking about adding more folks, what's your philosophy or view on the economics? Is it a flat fund structure so that everyone's rowing with equal weight paddles? Or is it you know, earn it um, as you go? Or how do you think about economics? Yeah, that is a tough one, particularly with smaller size funds, because there aren't as much, you know, uh, slop to go around. Uh, it's pretty it's pretty slim on the budget line. So um, I guess what I have experienced in the past is when you add more senior level individuals, like a partner level, they would be uh, participating in that fund that you would bring them in at, and it may be at a gradiated level, but it's not a huge number of levels. Um, and so I think having a huge number of levels would be very difficult to make sure that everybody is happy. Uh, so I would favor more of a flat structure, but with a gradiated, you know, single level within that. So a partner obviously would make less than a GP in that fund. But that partner, depending on if they help to raise the fund or not, you know, there are dimensions on that that are more qualitative decision making from the existing GPs. So if I tried to be quantitative, I don't want to put you in a corner here, but if you yeah. were a two partner fund and you wanted to add a third partner, would it be 33, 33, 33 5% because you raised it? Or like, what's the gradations? Uh, how fine granular do you get? So I guess I would view it as... Um, I don't know if 5% is the right number, but it also depends. You want to not have people worrying about their mortgages. So the fee split versus the carry split are two different elements. The carry yeah. split, obviously, having it more equal uh, in a fund is better because that's the longer term payoff. And that's the bigger payoff, frankly. And then the fee stream split is really dependent on ensuring that whoever you bring in is not worrying about making their mortgage payment, but focused on working at the fund and delivering on the fund. And that's where you would come into the different levels of compensation around that. So maybe you start with a, with a 5% delta and, and negotiate from there. What about vesting on carry? So obviously we want everybody aligned for the long term and carry is, is the upside, uh, but it takes a lot of years to get carry. 
Like, do you have a, a sense on vesting for that? And and even with you know a dual GP structure, what happens if someone loses interest? How do you account for those things? Yeah, those are tricky. So I would normally, if we brought in another partner, we would uh, shift to a five year vest uh, across the the three partners. And five years, I think, is fine. I have seen some funds go to ten year vesting. I think at NEA, NEA maybe at a ten year vest cycle. Twelve, in fact. That's well, what, yeah. okay. That's what so I understand. You really have to earn your way into that fund. So that's one of the levers you have in addition to the split on the carry is the best cycle. Now, in the past, the argument has been, well, you're going to put the, the companies into place in the first three to four years. And therefore, you know, having a five-year best seems fair. The challenge you have is companies to get them all the way through the cycle, especially an early stage venture fund could take you eight to 10 years. And so you have to trade off what stage investment you are. You know, if you're, if you're a growth stage, maybe a four to five year best is plenty, but if you're an early stage, maybe it's eight year best on the carry itself. So you have to look at what stage you're at and where is the kind of, where do you carry the water and how, how long do you carry the water on those companies? Are you, are you a board member on all those companies or not? Are you passive? I know a lot of, uh, what you would call sprinkle and sprout funds are two or three year best because you're just writing those 50K checks or the 150K checks and moving on. You're not really building a company over that time frame, And so that's, that's a, a different best set schedule I can see on what's the effort and you know the required need of the, of the partner itself. That makes sense. And even just sort of a commitment level assertion that I'm going to be around for the long term. You can trust me. I'm not going anywhere. I, I like what you said about um, uh, carrying the water in the sense that it's relatively easy to put money to work. It's actually quite hard to get liquidity on the other end. I think a lot of people forget that. Yeah, my, my partner calls it writing the checks is easy. Cashing the checks is hard. <laughs> That's it, exactly. That's it, exactly. In summary, I'm, I'm curious, any other comments or advice for Call it a, an early stage GP who's looking to expand and, and create a, a going concern. Did we cover everything? Is there anything I've missed? You know, I think the, and we talked about this before, the downside of getting it wrong is, is expensive, not just on the dollar amounts, but the reputation issues. Because if you think about it, if you're a fund that has board seats, now the entrepreneur that has that board member has to worry about uh, oftentimes what will happen is when a GP is exited from a fund, those companies are orphaned or they're given to the most junior person within the fund because, oh, that reason that GP was exited is they did awful deals. We're not going to, you know, those, those deals are done. And so that leaves the entrepreneur in a really tough spot. And I always encourage venture capitalists when I'm mentoring them is make sure you know all the partners in the funds where you're syndicating with, because if particularly in, in downturns. We saw this in the 01 to 03 timeframe uh, time where GPs were getting shot left and right, is you want to make sure that your company that you syndicated with that partnership, you get your company placed with the most senior GP in that partnership because they're going to get the company through on subsequent round investments. If they get relegated to the younger partner within that partnership, the probability of that group kind of stepping up at each round is really low. Uh, so these are just defensive mechanisms you always need to be thinking about that are part of another partnership's GP structure and uh, stability that will affect your own companies in your own portfolio that most people don't think about. 
That's a really interesting dynamic. And I've, I've seen that firsthand. The, the partner who picks it up can't win because if the company succeeds, it's the former partner's win. And if it fails, it's your fault. And so you, you, you don't, they truly are orphans. And the incentive, interestingly enough, is, is if a partner does pick up a company is to shoot it as quickly as possible so that they can blame it on the former partner. So you have very adverse uh, incentives there that you have to be really careful with. Yeah, 100%. I, what I do say to super junior folks is if you get an orphan company and you get to take the board seat, make it a success because that's your best opportunity to, to shine uh, without yes. having to earn it up front. Or shoot it within the first two years. <laughs> or, shoot, or shoot it quickly. <laughs> uh, but we are talking about entrepreneurs and, and startups <laughs> and, and livelihoods here. Susan, that's amazing. Thank you so much for the time. I'm, I'm grateful. Lots of insight here. I have a ton of notes. And I think this is going to make some amazing uh, experience to share with other fellows. Well, again, thank you for inviting me. And I really enjoyed the conversation. And I wish much success to all the listeners and whatever they're doing. Fantastic. Thank you again, Susan. That's a wrap. Tune in next week for another candid conversation on what makes a great VC investor with your host, the Kaufman Fellows. 